Well, friends, I pray that this weekend has been encouraging to you, that it's been helpful, that it's spurred on good conversation and uh, caused some relationships to be strengthened, maybe some new habits to, be, uh, to, to have begun. You've come this weekend to learn, to grow, uh, to get to a place of peace in your marriage, a place of rest, a place of delight. You remember when you got married? Remember what you pictured and what you anticipated? The bliss you, you pictured? You could run through the, the pictures in your mind, the, the videos in your mind of what it was going to look like at holidays or vacations or kids. You pictured you know, all these things, the mountain cabin with the cozy fire and the warm drink. When we get married, we can kind of we kind of scroll through the insta feed of pictures, right? What it's going to look like, the expectations, the joy, the satisfaction, the peace. We picture pure delight. And when people come in for for counseling, for marital counseling, something's happened. That picture's not being uh, fulfilled. It's different, or something is happening. And things haven't panned out. The expectations were left unmet. And now things that are happening, they feel like they can't be stopped. People come because there is a longing for some semblance of, of the things that they once pictured, the joy, the satisfaction, the peace. There's a longing for rest. I'd say there's a longing for Eden. And we got a good picture of that. Aaron helpfully laid out what that picture is, the the original intent from Eden to Eden. What a helpful picture to see where we're headed. And these these longings are good. These are good longings. It's actually embedded in us to long for this, to want this for our marriage. We long to get back to Eden to the place of pure delight. Think of Eden, you know, it's unashamed openness, transparency, transparency. It's nakedness in every way, and it's pure delight. Pure delight. That's what returning to Eden is. It's returning to delight. It's returning your marriage to a foundation of joy, trust, closeness, connectedness, returning to unhindered intimacy with your spouse. We just talked about that in our breakouts. Intimacy. Intimacy. I believe that if we clarify the longing that we actually have in us, the natural, it's actually going to help us. It's going to give us a target. It's going to give us a more accurate picture and portrayal and actually lead to more joy. Many marriages make the mistake, make the mistake of wanting things to return to the way they used to be. But as we just saw with what Aaron laid out in the plan, that's not where we're headed. We're not headed to the way it used to be. It's actually, it's, it's something new. And I'll hear this, and maybe you've thought this. I just, I just want to go back. I want to go back to before this thing happened that caused this in our marriage. I, I wish things could just return to the way they were before all this stuff started happening. And people might talk about, well, our first year of marriage was awesome. Our first five years of marriage was great. And then these things, I want to go back to those first five years. The longing is it's a good one. I want to go back to that. But what I always ask is, why do you want to go back to what led you here? Why would you want to do that? It ended here. (laughs) That's the trail. You took that trail, and here's where you are. Why would you go back to that? We need something new. We need something new. And Eden 
Returning to Eden is not about returning to the way things were in your marriage. It's about returning to the way things were in the garden. Or it's, it's not about returning to the way things were in the garden. It's about returning to the way it was intended. It's, that's going to be the new. Returning to Eden is about returning to a right relationship with God. So it's not about returning to the way things were. It's about returning to the way things were intended. But hear this. We've got to be careful because when we talk about, you know, we use this phrase, returning to Eden, and we talk about delight and really think of, picture the garden, and we think of just pure delight and pleasure and just openness and connectedness and relationship. And it's easy to get lost in, okay, so... It's about returning to pleasure for the sake of pleasure, because I want pleasure. But as we looked at, pleasure's fleeting. I think that's the gospel of me influencing. Pleasure is fleeting. It fades. It's here and it's gone. But here, this, this is a helpful way to think about it. Pleasure <clears throat> is a byproduct of something. So it's actually the result of some action. So think of pleasure as a reaction to something that has taken place. So when we think about returning to Eden, it's not just about happiness and being fulfilled. It's not about restoring a right relationship with your spouse. It's about returning to a right relationship with God. And in Eden, we have this beautiful picture. It's perfect, unbridled relationship with God, walking in the garden with God. I mean, imagine that, walking with God in the garden. But it's in this relationship that we experience overwhelming joy, perfect peace, unashamed intimacy. Why? Because our relationship with God is the action that causes the reaction of delight. That's why we're so intent on pointing you back to that. That's the action that causes the reaction. The side effect of this relationship with God, the overflow, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Delight comes when the very core of our longing has been satisfied. So see, the longing's good. It's good that we long for that. We should. If you don't, maybe we need to ask, why am I not longing for that? What's wrong? There's, there's a natural longing. So there's, the longing is there. So if you don't feel, there's something suppressing it. Because we should long for, for this. We should long for this. Delight comes when the very core of our longing has been satisfied by the only one who can satisfy it. Because we've, we've, we've bought into the lie. We looked at the problem. We bought into the lie that we are the good news to ourselves, and we make the Genesis 3 mistake over and over and over again. We think that we can find satisfaction elsewhere other than God. But friends, if you want to return to Eden in your marriage, rekindle the love that once was there, if you want to increase your joy... In your marriage, peace in your home, kindness in your conversations, we have to have the right target in place. We've got to be headed in the right direction. So we don't want to go back. I want to go back to the way things were, but that led you to here. So we were shooting for the wrong target, weren't we? Let's look at what's the right target. Our goal has to be a right relationship with God. This is returning to Eden. And that's where we want to return to. That's returning to Eden. So what's the promise? There is a promise for you. Here's the promise. If you are seeking a right relationship with God, you will find it. So that's what you're seeking. You'll find it. That's promised to you. See how this all, it, it all adds up. 
Here in Jeremiah 29, you don't have to turn there. Just listen. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Hear this now. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then hear Jesus' words. What he picks up on the same thing. Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. See how this is all connected? We have this picture, the right picture of returning to Eden. Now we're anchoring ourselves in a promise to us so we know where we're headed and that's actually promised to us. I will hear you. I will find you. Seek me with your heart. So think about it. Just think about this weekend for a second. This weekend you've had a group of clinicians, trained clinicians, brothers and sisters in Christ, but trained clinicians. Okay, we're trained and we've, we've, we've studied and learned the ways to deal with couples and, and certain marital relationship and theories. We, we know Gottman theories. We know emotionally focused theories. We understand solution focus and all these other focused theories. We know these things. But what are we saying to you? We're not here to give you the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a Gottman theory. That's helpful. It can help in a relationship. But that's not what that's at the heart. You're actually missing the light. Hear what we're saying. We're saying you will not experience true delight in your marriage apart from Christ. That's the heart. God is the foundation and the source of your delight. And he's offered to you. And what God says to us in his word is that when you seek a right relationship with God, you will find it. That's all right here. And it's given to us. That's the promise. Returning to Eden is returning to a right relationship with God and you can have a right, relation, right, right relationship with God right now because that has been made possible for you in Jesus. It takes us right back to the gospel. This is what, this is what gets me so excited about Christian counseling and why I get more and more uh, adamant about what the Lord has called us at Steeple to do. Because you, you, can't, you can't look, I want to help a marriage experience true delight. I can't get there without going through the gospel. It comes back there. So when we say our, our, what we do at, at, at Steeple is we want to stay faithful to Scripture always and excellent in our clinical work. And sometimes what's out there is people think, well, I'm going to just kind of integrate my faith into my, my practice. But I'm saying my faith is my practice. That actually being faithful to Scripture makes me a more excellent clinician because I can't help them experience true delight without the gospel. That's why we're here. Now, hold on. You might think, Jonathan, I came here for help in my marriage. I'm looking for strategies. I'm kind of thinking I need five things that are going to you know, help me um, have some different languages to speak, just some of these things. Okay, that's fair. Let me tell you this. There was a, a client I worked with, and I remember him. We, we were working through just kind of some of the stuff that you know, he was dealing with, and, and I remember him saying this to me very vividly. He said, Jonathan... Because I was bringing him back to the gospel, and he said, I know that I'm saved. I know you don't have to tell me the gospel. I'm already saved. I know that I'll be with, with Jesus in heaven. I know that I have eternity secured. But how does that help me right now? Come on, give me the five points that are going to help me get out of this. 
for him, his relationship with God, a right relationship with God, just produced salvation. It produced salvation for him. It was transactional. He did something for God, and God did something for him. I pray a prayer, and you give me salvation. I believe you save. That's how it works. See that? It's transactional. The rest of his life, he believed, I remember him saying this, was to be lived in miserable obedience to a God who didn't actually care about him, but a God who had to save him because he prayed the prayer. That was his, that was his belief. That was his worldview. There was no relationship. There was only salvation. He wanted the salvation from Genesis 3. He wanted to be saved from his Genesis 3 condition but he didn't realize that there was a Genesis 1 relationship to enjoy. A right relationship doesn't merely produce salvation. It is not a transaction. It is a transformation. See why we have to go back there? The right relationship is transformative. We don't get saved and move on with our day. It's not like going through a drive through Right? Yeah, I'll take an order of eternal salvation. Do you want a relationship with that? Uh, no, just eternity, please, in heaven. Do you want anything different added to your order, sir, to make your life any different now? Uh, no, just the security of my eternal destination. That's all. Uh, by the way, how long is that going to take? Because I've got to get to the cleaners. That's our attitude sometimes, right? It's not a transaction. It changes the very fate of our soul and it transforms the very center of our being. We have to start here if we want to improve our marriages. We are given new life and that new life bears new fruit. A right relationship with God produces the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we look for. So let me ask you, let me challenge you. You might say, okay, okay, I am saved. I know, I, I, I get the gospel, I know these things. So where's the fruit of the Spirit in your relationship? Where do you see that? You know, we can't have a right relationship with God by our own doing. God has sealed his promise to bring you into that relationship through his Son. So the promise is guaranteed because the work is accomplished. It's finished. And when you're seeking that relationship with God in your own heart... Hear this, friends, you, and you are married, then you're seeking that relationship with God to be the foundation of your own marriage. It doesn't work the other way. You, you, you can't say, well, I'm just going to seek it in my marriage and not in my life because you're already keeping it from some part of your heart. Submitting to his will, his plan for your life, when you do this and you're married, it is submitting to his will and plan for your marriage. So if you're married and you're doing this in your own life, this applies to your marriage. That's why we start in your own heart. If you, need, you need God to be at the center of your life. When he's at the center of your life, he rules from the throne of your heart. And when God is ruling on the throne of your heart, he's ruling over your marriage. We have to start there. When God is ruling in your marriage, the result is a foretaste of Eden. That's the truth. That's the promise. This is a taste of what was intended. Pure delight, sheer joy, utter bliss, uninterrupted pleasure. And these promises that we lean on for our marriage, these are promises for every believer. This is why we look at these promises that guide our marriage. They're for believers. 
So that's what returning to Eden is all about, a right relationship with God. And this is the promise. You can have it. You seek it. You can have it. So what's our response? What is our response? I, uh, when I was a youth pastor for a number of years, I had a student who <clears throat> would come to church. He had come from a different, uh, different church, and he was invited by one of the other students, and he would come, and he wouldn't would really come to youth group. He would just come to the service, and he would sit in the very back of the sanctuary with his hood up and his headphones on the whole service. I kind of thought, why is he even coming? I, I, don't, I mean, he's listening. He's not, I don't know why he's here, but there's a sense of belonging. He needed to be here. So I trusted the Lord. Okay, you're working in his heart. But I remember him coming to me at one point and saying, and we got lunch together, and he just was struggling, struggling to feel connected. He felt like he wanted a girlfriend. He needed that in his life. He felt like he didn't mean anything apart from that, so we kind of talked through that. And I shared with him my own story. Because my own story is something I realized. And it was something I gave to God when I realized this is an idol in my heart. i got to give dating up. I gave it up. I said, for the whole year, I'm, I'm, Lord, this is your year. Take over my life. Be the center of my heart. And just, I, I give up. I give up. That's the year I met my wife. And I shared that with him. I shared this fast. I said, I went on a dating fast. And I said, Lord, you take over. And my goal of the dating fast was not to complete a year and then find somebody. It was to have God be the Full joy in my heart. So, so I would say, if he brought me somebody, great. If not, let me be focused on what he's calling me to. I shared this with the student. His eyes got big, yeah. I could see him thinking, like, I'm going to do that. And he said, I want to do that. He wanted to give up dating and place God on the throne of his life. I said, great, great. So we shared, we prayed together. He called me several weeks later and said, I wanted to talk. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I gave up dating, like you said, but I haven't met anybody yet. <laughs> I, I kind of felt like that was coming, but I, I thought, you know, where, what, was he, what was he doing? Who was on the throne of his heart? I think that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? We can say all the right things, but at our core, in our hearts, we still want something different. And I think even with this student, I think there was a genuineness to him. I mean, he just, it's like hard to realize, you know? It's hard to realize where your heart lies. There was a genuineness to it, but, but you see, I mean, you can see even the gospel of me robbing him, right? It's about me and getting something. But he hadn't turned to the Lord at all. He was looking for a means to an end. He wasn't looking for a relationship with Christ. He was looking to release Cupid. That's what he wanted. He wanted to release a chubby little baby angel with a, with a bow and arrow to go out and shoot him, somebody that would fall in love with him. That's what he wanted. And apparently they don't have very good aim because they didn't get anybody. He didn't find it, so what did he do? He stopped looking. He didn't stop looking for a relationship with a girlfriend. He just he gave up on seeking God. That's what he gave up on. And that's what we do in our marriage Sometimes. We do something for an expected transaction. I'll submit to him so that he will sacrifice more and better. I'll sacrifice for her so that she'll submit to me more. It's transactional. And what happens when we don't get that? Well, I've, I've been submitting to, her, submitting to him and he's not sacrificing, so I'm not going to submit to him anymore. Or the other way around. It becomes a transaction. 
what are we actually submitting to or sacrificing for? We're actually just doing it for something. We're, we're actually trying to get something. That's a transaction. That's, that's a miserable, miserable relationship. Friends, but God has delight. He has the delight of transformation for you and your marriage. Yes, it takes work. Yes, it requires patience. And yes, it is something we cannot do on our own, which is it's so encouraging to see the whole body gathered. You've got a group of people committed. Lean on each other. But let me encourage you, there is a foretaste of Eden for your marriage when you trust in Jesus as your guide, your foundation, your goal, and your purpose. There's a foretaste. Why? Because he's the only way back. He's the only way back. And I always love responding to people that have, that have problems with the exclusivity of Christ, saying he's the only way back, to say, to say but he's, he's for you. Like, he offers that to you freely. Yes, he's the only way, but here it is. We look to him because God has promised for you, and this weekend we've, we've really only scratched the surface. We're really only scratching the surface here of, of the promises he has for you. There's so many passages of Scripture, and I think I feel like Aaron did an amazing job just kind of breezing through the entire plan as best he could, but there's so much more there. There's so much more there that we can unpack. But don't you see your delight in God your delight in God will overflow into your delight for your spouse. In fact, that's the only true way to experience it. So knowing the promises God has for you will, in your marriage, spur your promises to each other. Okay, so what does that look like, Jonathan? Let's put all this into action, okay? Let's, let's look at tangible ways that we can start participating in God's redemptive plan for marriage. So I want to give you 12 promises, and I'm going to give it to you in the form of a challenge. I'm going to give you a 12-promise challenge. These are 12 promises to renew your marriage and return your marriage to Eden. So I'd like to challenge you to make these commitments in your marriage right here, right now, to each other. I'm going to share with you these 12 promises to make to each other, <clears throat> which is a byproduct, which as a byproduct will cause delight in your marriage. But these are key, key, uh, keys to experiencing the intended pleasure and joy in your marriage. It's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, I feel like a, we, you could come up with hundreds of them. But these, these points come straight out of our work. So when we gather together, and this is what we're seeing. This is, these are the, some of the common challenges we're seeing. So these are the, the, the godly, imitating Christ responses to promise to your wife that we're seeing. So here's the 12 promises to renew your marriage, return to Eden. Here's promise number one. Promise to repent. Promise to repent. There's no better place to start than the promise to repent. I believe this sets the tone. This sets the tone for all other promises. In fact, if you get this one, many of the other promises will fall into place. Promise to repent. We need to repent first to the Lord and next to each other. And practicing repentance will protect your heart from pride. It will help your heart to maintain a disposition of humility. Why? Because you're, you're practicing something that is constantly looking at ways you've fallen short. It's keeping you humble. 
Now hear this, repentance is not saying I'm sorry. Repentance actually embodies both words and actions. So we seek forgiveness in repentance with our words. We should ask it. Should, there should be a verbal part of it. But we also demonstrate repentance with our actions. It requires both. This is important because I hear this a lot in sessions. What? But I'm saying these things. I think I shared this yesterday. I'm saying these things to you. Yeah, but you're doing these things. Repentance has to be active. Repentance is also needed continually. So you're not promising to repent one time. Hey, I repent of what I did. Okay, I did that. Check. You actually promise, you're promising to continually repent. Because it's not a transaction, right? And that's how sometimes we view it. I repent, you forgive, and we're done. That's not how it works. That's not repentance at all. Repentance is transformative. There should be transformation in repentance. Now here's a beware. I want you to beware of, beware of conditional repentance. And I say that because sometimes we have a tendency to do that and we place a condition on our repentance. This is when someone repents for the sake of getting forgiveness, right? It's, it's a transactional repentance. I'm saying sorry, but they're not forgiving me. That's kind of where that comes out. That's not repentance. Repentance is a full admittance of our sin and full recognition of what we deserve. You've kind of recognized it. I love going to Psalm 51 and David's cry for his sin. It's just against you and you alone, Lord, have I, have I sinned. Had he committed against others? Of course. But what was his heart aching over? The Lord. His sin against the Lord has devastated him and he's crying out. He's recognizing the full the fullness of his sin. And he's articulating what he deserves. We need to repent. That's where we start. Promise to repent. Number two, promise to pursue godliness. Promise to pursue godliness. When we're seeking to imitate Christ in our marriage, we are pursuing godliness. Last year, this is right, I think right before the pandemic, Pastor Colin, when I was still on staff there, shared a message with his church. Pastor Colin's a teaching pastor at the Orchard Evangelical Free Church, also uh, the teaching pastor of Unlocking the Bible. And he shared this with the staff. He said, the greatest gift you can give your spouse is your godliness. The greatest gift you can give your spouse is your godliness. I love that. I love that. What was he saying? A commitment to a holy life, pursuing that, seeking in your life to please God, will bless your spouse more than anything else. Can you promise to pursue godliness? And godliness is not something that we can achieve on our own. It's not just something, again, that we, we check off. Godliness is something that we pursue with help. In fact, God has given us our spouse to help us. So when we promise to pursue godliness, we're actually already starting to implement a relationship, a need. I actually need my spouse's help in pursuing godliness. We can't do it on our own. We're committing to setting our spiritual standard when we're pursuing godliness, our spiritual standard of measure on Christ. 
So godliness is our stance before the Almighty. And we have a natural, we have a natural tendency, just as, as human beings, we see this in the, the, the prayer of the Pharisee, right? Luke 18, he says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector, right? That's our natural tendency of our own heart is to compare ourselves to others, or at least I'm not like that. And we can get lost in that in our godliness, like look at the things that I'm doing. It's there, it'll creep up. But we're not comparing against the rest of the world. We're comparing to Christ, which means we're always going to be needing to pursue it. He is who we are striving to be like in our godliness. Here's a beware. Beware of the lie that your godliness is something you can accomplish. Again, it's not something that we finish. In fact, that's Christ's work in us, that he's, he will bring it to completion. It's not something we just check off the list. Hey, I pursued godliness. Check. Next thing. No, it's, it's you're promising, you're committing to something. If Christ is our comparison, he's the one in whom we trust to receive. I mean, we, that's where we get our godliness. So we're going to him and we're pursuing him. And so you're promising to pursue Christ to your spouse. And we look to Christ as a source and the giver of the godliness. Promise to pursue godliness. That's number two. Number three. Promise to fight for humility. Promise to fight for humility. Engage your spouse with a posture of humility. And this, is, this is a disposition of the heart that requires constant attention. I kind of think of it as like dealing with Comcast. I don't know if you've ever dealt with Comcast before. But sometimes you set up a plan. You're like, okay, what's it going to cost me a month? They say, here it is. Are there any other hidden charges? No. This is what it is. So my bill at the end of the month will say this, yes. And you get the bill, and it's not that. There's extra charges. You say, what is that? Oh, well, that's this fee. But that's what I asked you. I asked you if there were any other charges. Oh, well, yeah, but that's just a broadcast fee. You have to constantly, I mean, you have to look at it all the time. And then, and then you see, okay, there's a couple bills that go by. Okay, good, good. All right, I think we're good. And then you go back and look at it. Wait, wait how did it end up here? How are we paying this? And you call them, oh, well, that promotion ended. You didn't tell me a promotion was ending. Well, you know, you, yeah, that's just, that's just what it is. You have to constantly stay on top of it, which is why we don't use Comcast. <laughs> but that's what it feels like with humility, and that's why I say fight for humility because I think it's actually a battle. It's an internal battle that we have to constantly keep addressing because my tendency is to not be humble. Even in my humility, I might think, oh, man, I'm really humble. And then God gave me kids. <laughs> so we have to fight for it. It's a struggle. This, this is a promise to fight. And notice it's not saying promise to be humble, because I think that that's, we, we can't just be humble all the time. I'm going to fight for it. I promise you I'm going to fight for it. I might fall and I might lose some battles. When we stop paying attention to it, and that's when we start losing the battle. We've got to stay on top of it. So here's where you beware. Beware of your own tendencies. What are your specific tendencies that might cause you, what ways do you lose the battle? In what ways are you losing the battle in fighting for humility? Do I get defensive? Do I blame shift? Do I seek control? You know, when people come in for counseling, something is happening that is causing them to lose the fight. There's some, there's some hurt, there's some wound 
There's some trauma, there's a trigger, there's something happening in the process that's causing them uh, these issues. And that's what we work through to get back to humility. We have to work through these things. So there might be defensiveness. There might be blame shifting. It's okay to look at that and see that because then you want to say, okay, why am I doing that? What's in my heart? What am I missing? I'm missing something. Let me get to that. As counselors, we do that, but as brothers and sisters, we can do that and help each other out. If you're seeing a friend that's in a relationship and their humility is missing, help them look at these tendencies. How are they losing the battle? Promise to fight for humility. That's number three. Here's number four. Promise to never lose your sense of wonder for your spouse. Never lose your sense of wonder for your spouse. This means never stop asking questions. I wonder, wonder, I like to think of it as curiosity with expected amazement. Curiosity with expected amazement. Because in wonder, there's kind of an awe to it, isn't there? Curiosity is just, hmm, I'm curious how this thing works. But wonder elicits more of a, I can't wait to find out what, what, what more I can learn. I love in, 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 in hearing from, from couples who've been together for a while when they say, I just, I'm learning new things still, even now. And my marriage now is better than it ever has been. I'm 40 years down the road. That's awesome. You don't lose your sense of wonder. We're curious about our spouse and looking for the amazing ways that God has perfectly created them just for you. So you're looking at, and this is, um, I shared this, this story earlier, but I, I'm reminded of how, uh, how God has even shaped and molded me by my spouse. He brought someone perfectly into my life to help me in my ministry, in my life, and the things I'm doing. Not just to make me a better me, but to make me a more better worshiper of God, to bring delight. And it has brought delight. It has brought such delight. So we don't ever stop searching for new things because we know there's more. That's what never losing your sense of wonder means. When we maintain this sense of wonder, it communicates something. This is why it's important. What are you communicating with this? You're communicating that I want to know more about you. See, there's, there's an implied worth and value in that. I actually want to know more. I'm not losing my sense of wonder, my amazement, my awe. You're saying that I believe, I believe there is more, and I'm amazed about all the new things there are to learn. It's just, just a tip. Point those things out. If you learn something new, point it out to your spouse. I love how you do this. This amazes me. You're communicating a sense of wonder and awe. You know, one of the hardest things I think we do in couples counseling is to try and help couples listen to each other. Sounds like a simple thing. I don't mean just like hear what they're saying. I mean like actually be able to listen, to engage. And I want to encourage you to listen with wonder. This is a way that you can never lose your sense. Learn to listen with wonder, with awe, with amazement. Look at how God has created my spouse. And when we maintain our sense of wonder... It helps us be better listeners because we're curiously listening to learn new things. You know, so that sense of wonder is not just, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it, I know what you want. There may be things you learn, of course, 
But is, where's the wonder? How is that being communicated? So here's a beware. Beware. Beware of thinking that you know all there is to know about your spouse. Right? It's a natural tendency, natural uh, opposite. Beware of thinking that you know all there is to know about your spouse. And when does that creep in? Oh, I already know that. I already know that. There are things we learn, of course. But don't lose a sense of wonder because there's more. So here's a way to, to avoid that. Pray that God would increase your vision to see the wonder in his workmanship for your spouse. Right? It's Ephesians 2. Your spouse is a workmanship created by God for good works, perfectly, which he purposed for your spouse in advance. Think about God created your spouse and gave them to you. Promise to never lose your sense of wonder. That's number four. Number five. Promise to make your marriage secondary to your worship. This promise keeps, keeps the heart of the issue, keeps us at the heart of the issue. I mean, this, this keeps the, the toxic gospel in check. I think this will protect us. And I almost wanted to call this make your worship about God, not your spouse, because we do worship other things. That's idolatry. But making it secondary to your worship, I like the language here because what we're talking about is worshiping God is your priority. And imagine if you, I mean, think about it. If you're doing that, one thing to think about, oh, that's the tension it's going to cause when I'm choosing God over her. But imagine if you're both doing that together. That's the intention, right? Do that together. What if together you're promising to make your marriage secondary to your worship? Imagine what that does to our hearts. But what we're talking about is worshiping God as your priority, and we want to commit that to each other, make that priority and commit it to each other. So making God your primary focus of worship keeps him on the throne of your heart. Remember, that's what we just talked about. It keeps him on the throne of your heart. So you're promising to make your worship primary, promising to make your worship primary keeps him there. You want to keep him there. Worship, he, worshiping God is first. And you're promising to each other that I'm going to keep God first. If your spouse is telling you that, look, I'm going to keep God first in our marriage before you. Just know that in that, in that statement, your spouse is, is unlocking an, an endless pit of love for you. But when, when he's not, or when she's not, they're saying, I'm making you first before my worship. It's limited, and it's going to dry up. So there's joy in that, yes. So spur your spouse on to make worship of God primary. So beware. Beware of the tendency of your own heart to wander. Right? We sang that in Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our natural tendency. So what are the temptations? Think about this. What are the temptations in your life that lure you away from worshiping God as primary? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your spouse? Maybe it's your expected marriage. I had this picture of what it was going to be, and now I'm actually having trouble worshiping God because I'm trying to get over here and have this marriage. I can't put it aside. Are there other things that sneak onto the throne of your heart? We need to be aware of our tendency to wander. 
That's number five. Promise to make your marriage secondary to your worship. Number six. Promise to cherish your marital relationship as primary. So we now know we're saying this, or marital relationship is primary. We're saying this right after we've established that worship is, is over our marriage. It takes precedent. But now we're talking about the relationships in our lives. And so the marital relationship is primary. So you're, promise, you're promising to prioritize time of intentional connection with your spouse. You know, we gave you the, the connection uh, assessment and that's just to start a conversation to help you start speaking in what ways do we need to be more connected? What ways can we make more intentional time for this? How am, I, how am I cherishing my marital relationship as primary and how am I doing that with my time? I used to work at NSSED, which is the North Suburban Special Education District, for a couple years. And I worked with, as a teacher's aide, with students, it was elementary age, students with behavioral disorders and learning disabilities. I loved the job. It, was, it just was so fun. But one thing that broke my heart is you would see these, the relationships that m- many of the students, especially with the behavioral disorders, had at home. Um, the, their, the, their parents, the, the relationship was not primary. It was the, the children were the primary relationship, and so they sort of ruled the home. And what would happen is that we would work with these students, and we'd kind of help them with some of these behaviors, and they would you know, work and make some progress throughout the week, but the moment they got home, it just like it all got undone because the, the, the relationships were, were just so out of whack. And so it was such a common thread. The kids were the cherished primary uh, relationships on the thrones of those homes. So beware of the tendency of your heart. What are the things that you tend to cherish as primary? It's similar to the last one. Is it kids, work? Being active, being social, social circles, the people you hang out with, the things you do. You know, some, some marriages prioritize their activities as a couple rather than the marriage itself. And I say that because sometimes we just get in this mode of we think we got to go out there and do all these things. And we kind of forget that, yeah, but we're, we're actually hanging out with all these people. We're, our relationship between each other is, is struggling. What are we prioritizing? Beware of the tendencies of your heart. Promise to cherish your marriage as primary. Number seven, promise to speak words of life. Speak words of life. Words, friends, words can be hurtful. Words can be very hurtful. Words can be used as weapons. I like Aaron uses the term violent. Words can be violent. They can feel violent. They're, they're, they can be weapons that, that do something to us, cause us even physical sensations. It's a big one because I, I think that many couples don't even realize how hurtful their words have been, and we don't talk about it. And I, and I love the analogy that, that Aaron used with the vest. It's such a helpful one, isn't it? Every time there's kind of that hurtful word, think of that as a weight on the vest, another weight. And when that weight finally just breaks, breaks the person's back, then it all comes out. Words can be hurtful, so we want to speak words of life. This is an intentional action we want to make. So use language of kindness, gentleness, respect. Words of life seek to build up. Build up your spouse. Use words that are going to build them up, not tear them down. Words of life are always loving. And I say that because sometimes words of life are hard. There's hard words. 
Sometimes it's a hard word, but it's still loving, and you can do things in a loving way. You can have difficult conversations. Those are needed. So beware of your own unresolved hurts that can lead to hurtful words. You ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, right? What wounds do you have unresolved that might cause hurtful words to lash out? You know, you see, we see this in, even in like, I, I always use an anim, animal behavior. You know, if, if an animal's hurt and you try to go up and, and pet them, they might lash out. And you think, well, why would they do that? Well, because they're hurt. They're actually, it's, in a, it's a protection mode. It's a protection mode. So beware of the hurts that can lead to hurtful words. When we don't work through the hurt in our own heart, we tend to use hurtful language. And this is what we do in counseling. We're unwinding some of this stuff. We help spouses work through our own, their own hurt so that they can be freed to express life to their spouse. Promise to speak words of life. I'm getting there. The last ones are shorter, so we'll finish up on time, I promise. Number eight, promise to take ownership and responsibility. I love the picture. Uh, Genesis 3, right? That's, that's Genesis 3 um, at the very core of it. Take ownership and responsibility. Owning up to what you have done builds trust. There's something that happens when we start owning up to things. This is why we started with repentance, because that's actually at the heart of it. But own up to what you've done. Trust is a necessary part of the relationship. So if you want to build trust in your relationship, start by taking responsibility for your stuff. For your stuff. What you have. What kind of things do we need to take responsibility for? Our actions, our emotions, our decisions, our behavior, our inaction. Maybe our inability to take action. Beware of owning up. Here's a good one. Beware of owning up to what is not yours. I see this sometimes to avoid conflict. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. That actually doesn't help. Sometimes we want to avoid conflict. We want to protect someone. We don't want our spouse to get upset. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That doesn't help. That actually perpetuates the problem. It's going to make it worse in the long run. Promise to take ownership, responsibility. Number nine, promise to let God do his work in your spouse. Patience, right? So how do I know my role from God's role? Patience is, a hard, is hard, and we can't do it alone. We have a responsibility. I love, I love the story of David, and I've been studying that lately, and I, I noticed in one of the last times I, I read, and, and he, he called upon the Lord and petitioned him and hit in his very David way, you know, agonizing, Lord, do this, but then he had action. He went and did some things. Right? There's, there's an active response. And even with our, in Christian counseling, as we talk about as clinicians, we say we are expectant. We actually expect the Holy Spirit to move because that's how the Holy Spirit works. So we're not just, re- we're not just relying on the Holy Spirit and saying, yeah, there's probably, we actually expect. So we're, that actually changes our behavior because we're going to move forward expecting something to happen. That's what we're doing. We're expecting God to do his work. And our spouse, that's what we want. This is where we lean heavily on community. We lean heavily on community. Because this is hard. We need, we need help and support in our patience. But friends, his work is perfect. His process is perfect. His results are perfect. We can rely on him. So beware of taking things into your own hands. Let God do his work in your spouse. Promise to let God do his work.
Number 10, promise to pray for your spouse regularly. This is kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? And maybe it's already in practice, but I want to implore you, encourage you, admonish you to continue and increase your prayer for your spouse. This helps align our hearts to God's purpose for our spouse. It helps align our, our, our heart for how God cares for and loves our spouse. It helps us think about what their needs are, their hurts are, their fears, and we take them all before the Lord in intercession. When we commit to praying for someone, we're asking God to help give us his eyes for them, his vision, his love. Pray for your spouse. Pray regularly. Number 11, promise to seek and work for your spouse's good. Ask the question, what is good for my spouse in this situation? And what's our measure? We're, look, we're, looking, to, we're looking to the Lord so what is good for my spouse? Promise to seek and work for your spouse's good. This keeps your focus on their needs, so it helps with humility. Imagine a relationship. Imagine this, friends. Imagine a relationship where both spouses, husband and wife, were committed to this, to the needs of each other above their own. You stop worrying about all your own stuff. Why? Because your spouse is already caring for that for you. Beware of the tendency of our heart to seek our own good. So promise to seek and work for your spouse's good. I'll end with this last one here, number 12. So we've laid out for you this weekend, uh, what we've laid out here is essentially a life of worship. It's a life of worship. We have worship songs. We're gathering together. We're singing. We're hearing the word proclaimed. We're, we're being the word to each other. A life that seeks to glorify God with everything that has been given to you, including your marriage. That's what we want, that's what we want to see. So here's the last promise I want you to commit to. Promise to stay in gospel community. Promise to stay in gospel community. This is something you can commit to each other. And the reason it's helpful is that you want to be on the same page. We need to stay in gospel community together. I want my spouse to be in gospel community together. So I'm going to be in gospel community. Promise to stay in gospel community. Seek and maintain community. Fight for community. Protect it and set boundaries around it. Go to church regularly. Participate in it. Let your marriage have, have, have light on it from the church community. Be known in your church community. Seek to know others in your church community. Have people over. Get to know them. What's your story? How do you guys love each other? Glean from couples who you say they have a godly marriage. I want to be like that. Glean from that. Seek it out. Seek community together. Did you know that when, when uh, some of the, the newer research that came out that kind of debunked the 50% of Christian marriages um, that end in divorce, that's not true. You know, one of the things they, they found is said 27 to 50% of, of committed uh, people in a committed religious community, are, their divorce rate is 50% lower. And it's what, it's what they're finding is that the key factor making the most difference was this commitment to the practice. So there was a, there was a, a, a unity in doing something together. So couples who regularly practiced uh, this, any sort of religious commitment behavior, so they maybe attended church, read their Bibles, or... So in other words, it wasn't just a, a checkbox, yes, we're a Christian marriage. It was actually, this was in practice... They were in far better shape, far better shape their marriages than the rest of the world's standards. So, Jonathan, if I go to church, 
my marriage will be better. False. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. What this is showing is a byproduct of authentic faith. The byproduct of authentic faith is a result in a stronger marital relationship. So you have, so, so we talked about delight. It's a byproduct of authentic faith. So if a stronger marital relationship is the goal, you've kind of missed the point. So in other words, if, if we're returning to Eden and actually delight, the delight of Eden is my goal, I just want that pleasure, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. We have to start by looking in here so we know where we're headed. We recognize our need for a Savior. We recognize our need for that right relationship. If you want to return, if you want to experience Eden in your marriage, make God the center of your life. If you want delight in your marriage, make God the center of your life. If you want to make him the center of your life, then what do you do? You walk with him. Isn't that the Edenic picture? The picture in the garden is that they're walking with him. Walk with him. Move towards him. How do we do that? How do we actually do What's the tangible way that we can walk with God right now, today, here in St. Charles? Go to where his people gather. Go to where his word is preached, is spoken. Go to where his praises are expressed. Go to the center of where he is. Go to his church. Go to his church. Church is where the word of God is preached. This is where we mature in godliness. It's in church community that we find strength to fight for humility. The church is where we are reminded to prioritize our worship. Through the reading, the singing, the preaching, and the praying of God's word. We need each other. In the church community, the Spirit meets us and convicts us, challenges us, humbles us, grows us, shapes us. It matures us in Christ-likeness and therefore makes us better spouses. You want to grow in your marriage? You want delight? Make God the center of your life. Go to where he is. Seek Christ in community. If you want a foretaste of the unhindered, restored relationship with God as it was intended in the garden, if you feel like you've been working so hard on making things better and trying, you've been trying to make things better over and over again, and no matter what, you seem like you cannot find peace, rest, and joy, they seem to elude you. Friends, I'm telling you, there's, there's joy, there's rest, there's peace, there is an Eden of delight for you and your marriage. And we need to look to one place for that. Hear this as we close. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you have promised and given us a way to solidify that promise in him. 
God, I pray for marriages here that they would be strengthened, that they would grow, that they would be changed and transformed by your spirit. I pray that there be joy and delight, not because of any words or techniques or special things, but purely because, God, you want delight. You have delight for us in our marital relationships. May we increase in our love for our spouse and see the unique and beautiful ways that you have gifted us in giving them to us. And Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close? We're